Greetings and welcome to episode one of Unpacking Islamophobia, a podcast project brought to you by the Bridge Initiative at Georgetown University. My name is Arsalan Iftikhar. I am a senior fellow at the Bridge Initiative. I am the founder of themuslimguy.com and author of the book Fear of a Muslim Planet, Global Islamophobia in the New World Order. And I am thrilled beyond belief to welcome our first guest, Professor John Esposito from Georgetown University. Dr. Esposito is the founding director of the Al-Walid bin Talal Center for Muslim Christian Understanding at the Edmund Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. And he is the author of over 45 books and monographs, including The Future of Islam, Islamophobia, and the Challenge of Pluralism in the 21st Century, What Everyone Needs to Know About Islam, and Who Speaks for Islam, What a Billion Muslims Really Think. Dr. Esposito, I want to welcome you to our podcast here today. Uh, thank you. I'm delighted to be with you. So the International Herald Tribune once called you the most influential Islamic scholar in the United States. And my first question to you is about the phenomenon of Islamophobia, which we both know is a hot button phrase that both means everything and nothing to a lot of people and has, more importantly has evolved over the last several decades. And so I just wanted to get your thoughts on how Islamophobia has evolved or devolved over the last few decades in your experience in the decades of work that you've been doing. Well, sadly, it's it's been very complicated and it's, and it's grown significantly. I think it's important to note that prior to the Iranian Revolution, for the vast majority, certainly of Americans, but this could be true in many parts of, of Europe, very little in general was known about Islam and Muslims in terms of education, in terms of training of diplomats, in terms of media coverage, uh, professional organizations like the Middle East Studies Association or the American Academy of Religion both of which years later I was fortunate enough to become president of, uh, had minimal coverage uh, of any of that. And so when the Iranian revolution hit and hit at a time when obviously, you know, you had TV and you could see things live, that was for many their first engagement with Muslims. I mean, they, they may have known somebody who was Egyptian or Arab or Lebanese or, you know, in passing, but to actually have a sense of Muslims and their faith being raised in this overthrow where what was seen as a, a mighty Shah who had the second largest military in the Middle East, enormously wealthy, you know, et cetera, on media. He and his wife in American media regularly when they would come here speaking very flawless English was suddenly overthrown by a revolution led by Ayatollah Khomeini, a, a very senior cleric in his 70s who had been living outside the country for 22 years. And suddenly uh, Iran was replaced by the Islamic Republic. That was complicated then with the American hostages and, and all of this occurring at a time when in the media you would see every day demonstrations in the street of Tehran. And for many, again, they'd see a large demonstration and think that this was happening all over Iran and that this, you know, that all of these people represented uh, what they were seeing, you know, cries of death to America or America being referred to as the great Satan. Then the taking of the American hostages held for, you know, for more than a year. All of those things significantly, on the one hand, made policymakers and others interested, but it was more getting interested in, as it were, knowing the enemy. Now, post-Iran, you had another situation developing. The initial success and example in the toppling of an entrenched government of the Shah was heralded by many in the Muslim world 
as something positive. That is, it was, you know, an authoritarian regime that had fallen or a regime that was seen as uh, un-Islamic. Un that was followed shortly after by the Afghan Mujahideen's success in ending the Soviet Union's occupation and driving, driving them out of Afghanistan. The Mujahideen being seen as, as it were, holy warriors. Uh, and being celebrated, what they were doing was being celebrated and supported by the U.S., the U.K., some of the Gulf states, and people were coming from various Muslim countries to also help in that, that fight. So the overthrow of the Shah and the Mujahideen victory became an example and a motivator for the growth of actually two things. One, the growth of both mainstream Islamic movements, but also of militant movements that would seek or, or wish to do, you know, to do the same thing. Now, the next wave becomes 9-11. And that was a, in many ways, equally stunning, even more shocking, certainly to Americans for the first time, you know, we were significantly attacked uh, on, on our mainland, you know, both the World Trade Center and then in DC, the Pentagon. So with 9-11, Islamophobia began to grow exponentially. Uh, Al-Qaeda's attack, Bush and Blair declaring a global war on terrorism, you know, not just a, a focused war, let's say on Afghanistan or whatever, but a global war on terrorism. All of this framed, if you will, a globalized and a global confrontation. And indeed, you began to see the globalization of Islamophobia in a variety of ways. Mass arrests or, or, or gatherings of, of, of thousands of people of a Muslim background brought in. Uh, some studies show 65 to 70,000 people being brought in, questioned, et cetera, and then let go. Arrests taking place, security at airports becoming very tough, and, and that security often not simply vetting, if you will, terrorists that could be easily identified, but in fact, to be Muslim for many years you know, meant that you you were watched very closely, often vetted more than once. So you were, as it were, you were, you, if you were the average Muslim traveling, you were guilty until proven innocent. And that wasn't just in the U.S. That be, became global in terms of the way in which uh, one saw it. At that time, I had appeared on Fox for an interview, and it was right after an interview that Bush had given with a senior military next to him, the head of the CIA, talking about the global war. And when I got on, I started to answer the question in a nuanced way in terms of this notion of a global war on terrorism. And the person who was interviewing me, the, the young woman said to me, are you deaf? Normally, you don't have that kind of discourse going on. I said, excuse me. She said, didn't you hear them say this is a global war on terrorism? That means the United States will and can go any place in the world. And so that, that set us, it seemed to me, in a new direction. It did. Uh, and, you know, I, I really want to focus on the global nature of, of everything in the second question. And I actually want to preface it with actually an interesting story. So my, my latest book, as mentioned, is, is called Fear of a Muslim Planet, Global Islamophobia in the New World Order. But the original subtitle actually did not have the word global in it, actually, until you read my manuscript. You are one of the back cover endorsement quotes for 
the book and, and I remember when you gave me a, a copy of my manuscript back for the endorsement you said you know I, I have a suggestion add global to that subtitle and it really resonated with me and obviously it made it to the final print and, and it's really important as you said Dr. Esposito because many people often conflate Islamophobia with being a purely American phenomenon right whether it's the Republican Party or Donald Trump etc but you know as, as we can see all over the world from the rise of right-wing ethno-nationalism across the European Union that are based on an anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant political platforms to genocidal anti-Muslim ethnic cleansing campaigns in many parts of Asia and places like China and Myanmar and, and now in India. You know, we're, we're starting to see this rise of global Islamophobia in a way metastasizing all over the world, which is quite worrying to obviously 2 billion Muslims living in the world today. So my question to you is why do you think it's important to study Islamophobia as a global phenomenon? And, and how do you think that that can really widen people's apertures in terms of the overall effect and impact that Islamophobia has on people all over the world? Yes, well, I think that because it is global, if you will, it becomes more important to, to always contextualize when people are talking about Islamophobia that it is a global phenomenon. I mean, think about the fact that, you know, when we, when we talk about anti-Semitism, we're concerned about anti-Semitism globally. We don't just say, well, anti-Semitism in the United States and, you know, forget about the rest. And, and what becomes a really phenomenal situation is the, the extent to which it's become a wave that continues to go in becoming more and more global. You know, initially you're talking about the U.S. and Europe, but then you see it spreading. Okay. So just a couple of points. What we see is a metastasizing social cancer from my point of view over a period now of decades, which impacts the lives of innocent Muslims globally. Wherever it occurs, it's it's not just obviously that innocent people, whether Muslim or not, become victims. And it's, it's not just that the terrorists are the Muslims that are caught and punished, etc., and getting what they deserve, but that in fact, very often, and you see it in, in polling over the years, that you wind up with significant percentage of a population that is non-Muslim increasingly because of the actions of a fraction of the 2 billion Muslims in the world generalizing and uh, about Islam and, and therefore nervous about having a Muslim as a neighbor and nervous about being in a train or a plane with them, even complaining at times, Muslims being taken off the plane because of complaints. And so what we see then is discrimination, hate speech, hate crimes, violence, death. We see issues that, that have to do with safety, social and political acceptance in terms of mainstream Muslims, civil liberties, their security, innocent Muslims, they become victims too often. And that, that can lead as it has at times in and continues in a number of uh, countries, lead to political policies, government and political policies and legislation that feed rather than ameliorate religious and ethnic racism. So Islamophobia has grown exponentially and globally over the decades. And there's a silence that takes place often on behalf of people who are going through this. That is, a number of governments don't speak out on it unless, unless it's at home and it's very, very obvious. With that, it also legitimated, it increased and legitimated an overwhelmingly negative media, whether it's print or social media. And we, we find phenomenal you know, growth from an early period where you might see one 
5% or 2% of media coverage dealing with extremism jumping to 28%. And, and where you would see the positive coverage, actually, the realistic coverage, uh, remaining very minimal in terms of the amount of coverage out there. So that people reading their newspaper, people looking at television, people looking at movies, you know, who are the, who are the bad people in movies? You know, they generally are Muslim or seen as Muslim. More recently, up in, you know, let's say in the last five to seven years, we could see in, in the West, certainly in the US and Europe, and it's actually increased in some European countries where Islam and Muslims wind up hitting at an all time high globally in terms of the way they are seen and covered. Okay, so domestic and international terrorist attacks like AQ and ISIL, and then, then you have mass and social media and the way they cover. Then you have the way politicians handle it. The American presidential elections, you know, when, uh, when you know, when President Trump talked in overwhelming numbers about the threat and when asked for a number, he couldn't actually give a number, but it was overwhelming. He talked about that they would entertain monitoring mosques. He talked about putting a restriction on the number of Muslims who could come into the country. And it was one of the first things that he did. This kind of stuff, these, these serve as, as catalysts in the, in the growth of Islamophobia. And so what you wind up with then is that fear of Islam and Muslims, not just militant extremists and terrorists, but fear of mainstream Islam. In fact, Islam is not seen as, if you will, mainstream. And Muslims has become normalized in popular culture, not only, and we'll talk about this, in America and in Europe, but actually increasingly in other parts of the world. In recent years, then, that globalization can be seen significantly in Europe, growing and existing in countries that don't have that many Muslims, you know, Norway, Sweden. Even in Hungary with Viktor Orban. Uh, there are Hungary, which has almost none, and in Poland. I, I did a conference in, in, in Poland, and I remember the person from Poland saying, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is we don't have many Muslims. The bad news is we have Islamophobia. A comparable statement was made about Australia. It's a bit different, but significant issues there. But then you see that movement into Asia, and that makes for, it seems to me, a very clear situation of its growth, because in a couple of these instances, they've been labeled as genocide. And we're going to talk about all of this. And one thing I, I kind of want to f flesh out a little bit more with you, uh, you know, is really uh, con comparing and contrasting conservative versus liberal Islamophobia. You know, another misconception that people often have is that Islamophobia is purely a quote unquote conservative political phenomenon. But you and I both know that liberal Islamophobia is alive and well all over the world. Uh, we see hyper secularists in France who try to ban the Muslim hijab, the headscarf, or uh, have burkini bans on their coastal French towns. To even once Hillary Clinton's uh, campaign, uh, once infamously leaking a photo uh, of then-candidate Barack Obama in a traditional white Kenyan ceremonial outfit, which the Clinton campaign had leaked to the Drudge Report uh, to drum anti-Muslim sentiment. So what I want to really ask you is, what do you see as some of the similarities and differences between conservative and liberal Islamophobia around the world today? Yeah, one of the things I, I would note is that, you know, that, that shows that the crossover at times in terms of the conservative and the liberal and the concern of politicians is that Obama did not go to a mosque until the very end of the yep. second term. Yep. And that was, you know, phenomenal when you really think of it. He went to a mosque overseas, you know, in Turkey and in Egypt, but not in America. When you, when you look at the conservative and liberal situation, 
One needs to think about the fact that today we're talking about the US, Canada, UK, France, Germany, Austria, Belgium, Holland, Poland, Hungary, then the Northern European countries, as I said, which have very populations of Muslims, very populations of Muslims, as well as in Australia, and in a number of cases, a very small number. And yet Islamophobia has grown. France and Austria in particular in the last year or two you can't tell the difference when you look at the political parties, for example, in the last elections in France, in terms of their position with regard to Muslims and, and the sense as almost an acceptance uh, by, by the current government of, of Le Pen's line that, that to be that to be Muslim means that your sole identity is so French that it's it's simply that French is your language, your culture, your food, your, you know, etc. Et you know, that kind of mentality. And I think pretty close to that also in Austria with the kinds of raids that took place in, in Austria at one point with something like 900 security people. So all of that is very much out there. Uh, and then more recently, you see the global phenomenon of China with the Uyghurs, over a million Uyghurs, Myanmar slash Burma and the Rohingya. Again, you, you know, you're talking about million India, you could be talking uh, as as potential victims in India, one forgets you have something like 200 million Muslims living there. And then the situation also in Kashmir and in Sri Lanka. So this this latter part has really come to be noticed. It, it's been there, but but developed and come to be noticed very much in the last five years in particular. And, and it has gotten very nasty in terms of the isolation of Muslims, detention of Muslims, the attempt to eradicate Muslims. You think about the Rohingya having to deal with uh, having having lived for generations in Myanmar, having their villages burned down, their women raped. We have a video that my class, you know, can see in which you wind up hearing and talking about and seeing the kinds of ways in in, in which people were totally terrorized and driven out. And more recently, we see the kinds of actions that are now taking place in India, as as the current government actually represents a government that wants to basically declare at the end of the day the so-called secular democracy of India as a Hindu nation. And the approach very much is that Muslims were the problem in the past and that Muslims should all go to Pakistan. And then the kinds of ways in which people are discriminated against in terms of education, uh, being imprisoned, violence, bulldozing of, of homes or businesses, I mean, all of those things are very much out there and what India has done in Kashmir. So it is, in many ways, an overwhelming phenomenon. It gets complicated by the fact that very often, as I said a little earlier, many countries don't speak out until they have to. And for many countries, they don't speak out because they benefit in their relationship with some of these countries. Absolutely. Uh, and we'll get to that in, in, uh, in, in our final question. But before we get to, to Asia and genocidal Islamophobia, I want to talk a little bit more about European Islamophobia. You know, from Marine Le Pen in France to Gert Wilders in Holland, Viktor Orban in Hungary, uh, and most recently, Giorgia Maloney in, in Italy, we're seeing an entire new generation of right-wing ethno-nationalists across the EU who are using Muslims as political footballs today. You mentioned Poland. I'd written in my book that there's one analyst who said that in Poland, Muslims represent less than 1% of the population, but they're a part of 99% of Polish presidential elections now. Right. You know, whether it's debating the French hijab ban or Viktor Orban and others dehumanizing Muslim refugees as, quote unquote, economic migrants so that they don't have to provide legal protections for them and really treat them like human beings. 
it doesn't really look good for future generations of, you know, several million Muslims living all across Europe. And so with that, I want to ask you, you know, what are your thoughts on European Islamophobia today? Of course, understanding that it's a little bit different in every country. But do you think that it's trending in, in a positive or negative direction looking into the future? I think it's a negative direction. I mean, if you look at France, there's been no you know, significant change, except that when the leader of France did not score as well as he could have, you know, then there were speeches about, you know, this kind of inclusive speech. But but the fact is, France, in what it was doing, it shut down the biggest, basically, Muslim civil rights, civil liberties organization. It had all kinds of regulations that that were attempting to marginalize in terms of what people could wear or not wear. The UK, both political parties have been accused of Islamophobia. The Conservative Party more than Labour, but it exists, you know, in both countries. Austria is... It's stunning when you think of Austria as the place that's always seen as the international community where other countries would come to meet to solve problems. And and it still goes on, you know, with like having, let's say, Iran talks at times, you know, in, in Vienna. And yet you look at what, what has happened in Austria in terms of the way in which uh, Muslims, again, many Muslims who've been there for a number of generations, suddenly being treated and identified not as just simply and taken as, as it were, fellow citizens, you know, with regard to anybody else, or being identified primarily in terms of their ethnic background, but their religious background. You know, I remember a number of years ago, I was invited to speak in Australia to the equivalent of their foreign relations committee. And the chair of it was a woman who identified herself as someone who came as a young girl from Greece, and how everybody was, quote, foreign at that time, you know, commit, were identified by the country they came from you know, if they were coming from the Middle East, as Lebanese, et cetera, you know. But how, in recent years, there's this distinction between talking about Muslims on the one hand and Australian Muslims and Australians. And it, it, it seems to me that concern has to be even more in Italy today with the last elections. I mean, it was strong before that. And in the U.S., uh, just look at the kind of conversations that exist in, in the country, not only in Trump's elections, but now as we're looking at legislative elections, you know, across the country, look at the, the, the language and the attitude towards Muslims and towards immigrants. And of course, a major portion of the way that Muslims are viewed is also as part of that large immigrant community. And, and there, what you see is the overwhelming negative force occurs among many in the Republican Party, so much so that the old division between moderate and, and conservative or very conservative has almost disappeared. On many key votes, you're lucky if it's three so-called moderates that feel they can stand up and, and hope to be reelected when they have to vote on um, members of the Supreme Court, when they have to vote on legislation. There are attempts to, to change that, but you see the, the strong opposition from the conservatives and the Republican Party with regard to the three members of Congress that are Muslim. And not only strong opposition, but the kind of language at times, you know, referring to somebody, a fellow legislator, as a terrorist. So I think all of that is very much out there. And it's not really getting, you know, that much better. At the same time, there are Muslims that prosper in some of these countries, just as if you look at the latest ISPU study, you have a significant number of Muslims that have prospered in the U.S., that are happy to be here, that that want to be here, but 
many of them will talk about the fact that either members of their family or other fellow Muslims experience discrimination, you know, sometimes four out of 10, five out of 10, and particularly, not particularly, but specifically the whole question of bullying of young Muslims in school, a significant percentage. And, And the bullying percentage is also significant because they ask the second question, you know, in terms of how often and a significant number talk about their children being bullied on an almost a daily basis. Yeah, it's becoming normalized in, in many parts of the world today. And, and we know, uh, you know, that when racism, bigotry and xenophobia are all taken to their extremes, it can lead to truly genocidal outcomes. Uh, and, we're, and we're starting to see that in, in uh, several prominent Asian countries, including China, uh, Myanmar and India, as you mentioned, where Islamophobia is being weaponized to persecute Muslim minority populations. You know, in China, we know that there are over one million Uyghur Muslims who are inside internment camps, forced to denounce their Islamic beliefs, eat pork and drink alcohol, which are forbidden to observe in Muslims. Uh, they're sending in Han Chinese men from the mainland to, to sleep in the beds of, of uh, Uyghur Muslim women, to, which is similar to obviously the ethnic cleansing campaigns of Slobodan Milosevic during the Bosnian genocide in the mid-1990s. And in Myanmar next door, uh, you mentioned that there has been a genocide where one million Rohingya Muslims have been ethnically cleansed out of their own country and actually were even written out of their own country's laws. In 1981, Myanmar passed a citizenship law which recognized over 50 ethnic minority groups within Myanmar, excluding the Rohingya, even though they've lived there since time immemorial. Before I get to my final question in, in five Islamophobia questions with Professor John Esposito, the problem is, as you mentioned and you alluded to earlier, Dr. Esposito, is that sadly, in, in many cases, for example, China's case, they've essentially been able to buy the silence of prominent Muslim world leaders. I remember once a former Pakistani prime minister, Imran Khan, was being interviewed by a Turkish TV network and they were asked, you know, because of all the business you do with China, does that mean that you can't speak out, you know, on the Uyghur Muslims? And Imran Khan on camera said, uh, to be honest with you, I don't really know what's going on there. Even though the Xinjiang province of China actually shares a border with Pakistan, even uh, Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who is a self-proclaimed uh, Muslim populist leader, actually went against his own foreign ministry who had condemned the Chinese government for their ethnic cleansing and genocide of one million Uyghurs and actually told TV cameras that the Uyghurs were living happily in China. And so obviously that makes the job of those of us who are trying to advocate for Muslim human rights and, and combat Islamophobia all the more difficult. And so my final question to you, Dr. Esposito, is, you know, based on all of this, you know, why do you think that our viewers and, and people in general should care about global Islamophobia around the world today? Well, because A, look, it's an enormous situation. B, the fact is, as you pointed out, that we're not getting enough people speaking out or doing anything about it. It's ironic that the former prime minister of Pakistan, who did much that I, I liked about him, but one of the last things he did is to host a meeting of the OIC. And it was done, and he, his whole speech was on Islamophobia, but talking about the West. And, and his special guest was a senior Chinese government official who then was allowed to throw his words in. When you look now, you've got a globalization of Islamophobia that's occurring at the same time that anti-Semitism is occurring and, and has increased. And an exponential increase also at the same time of ultra-conservative, right-wing, anti-immigrant, white nationalist, okay, mm-hmm. uh, some of whom are ultra-Christian nationalists, 
And that phenomenon is spreading. It's not just in the United States. It exists in Europe. For those of us and for those in the international community and for those countries that like to see themselves as democracies, they need to take a look at the latest polls in the last couple of years and see where countries like the United States and others wind up scoring. It's not at all where your average American thinks we would score in terms of how we're ranked as a democracy. It seems to me that there are many people in the world who want democracy, want equality, want freedom, want human rights. The question is, do they want them for all peoples and all peoples of color, all peoples in terms of their religion, etc.? The globalization of Islamophobia constitutes a serious and substantial threat for the present and future of generations. So even in a country like the US or in some European countries where Muslims are prospering, a significant number of Muslims have not and are marginalized and are discriminated against. And that doesn't bode well with regard to our future. And and again, it dovetails with this growth, if you look at elections in so many of the countries, the, the Italian elections, just the most recent, but you know, again, France, Austria, you can go through the whole thing, let alone over to Asia. You look at the nature of those governments and what kind of educational system uh, is going to be occurring? You know, well, you'll have, you know, attempting to control the curriculum, to burn books, et cetera. What kind of media, significant media coverage? What kind of movies? Look at the latest thing about the way mega movie stars in Bollywood are being treated, you know, in India. This is a phenomenon that at times people, I think, who are fortunate and are not victims either don't have a clue about or just kind of feel, well, that's happening to them. This probably a good reason for it, or at least it's not happening to me. And I don't think we can count on it. When I was growing up, my wife and I often talk about this in post-World War you know, to, to America. We felt that we grew up in, in the best of possible times. You know, over time, the economy improved. Over time, certainly Italian-Americans were no longer the villains in all the TV shows, et cetera. And we became integrated we were able to go to colleges and universities and not really feel that we really should be going to simply our faith colleges and universities. And we saw the society is growing. We saw ourselves growing professionally, economically. You look now and the divisions in, in our country today and the divisions take place. If you go, if you travel in Europe and you go globally, you find the divisions take place within families, within families themselves. And so I think, I think that, uh, you know, things are not going to get better. They're going to get worse uh, unless there's a more concerted response by religious leaders, but also by political leaders. Sadly, there are problems there. There are problems among religious leaders in that you have ultra-conservative Catholics, Protestants. We can go through the <laughs> the range of people, ultra-conservative evangelicals, certainly. You can see it in a, num in a number of religious traditions when you start going globally, you know. Where was the hero of Myanmar? Where where was she when all of this was going on in terms of speaking out or not speaking out? And when you don't have a Nobel laureate who steps up and speaks out, where are we? And and I think in, in America, people are nervous about the next election and how our, our Congress may be dominated and the kinds of policies that can come out of that we already know affect social policy, political policy, but also it affects religious policy, how religion is, is either privileged or treated as if it's important for everybody and that freedom of religion means freedom of religion for everybody. 
and not the idea that one's attitude on certain political or social policies is determined by somebody's religious outlook. Professor John Esposito, I would like to thank you for joining me for episode one of Unpacking Islamophobia, but more importantly, as an American Muslim human rights lawyer who was born and raised in the United States, I want to thank you for being one of the greatest allies that the American Muslim community has ever had. You have spoken out for tolerance and pluralism during times when nobody would speak out for us. And I want to acknowledge that on behalf of the 7 million American Muslims living here in the United States today. It is Yeoman's work and we hope that we will uh, continue this work for decades more to come. So I, I wanted to publicly thank you for that. To our audience, I want to thank you for joining us for the Unpacking Islamophobia podcast. And for more information, please visit bridge.georgetown.edu. Thank you very much. <laughs>